Welcome to episode 20 of the View from the Lab podcast. I am your host, Andy Woods. This episode was recorded in summer 2021 with science YouTube superstar Primrose Kitten. You may have seen her videos already and the prolific output she has across all the main social media channels in her aim to support as many students as possible. Talk through her passion for science and her journey from researcher to science teacher. Primrose is also a dedicated learner herself. You'll hear that she was so determined to finish her physics teacher subject enhancement course, she wrote the final report in hospital during the labour of her first child. Her foray into online learning was unplanned, but grew into a complete change of direction for her. Find out how it developed and grew into the educational empire it is today. Where did the name Primrose Kitten come from? Well, you can find out in this episode if you haven't already guessed. Apologies for the audio on some parts of this pod. We had a few technical issues on the day, but I hope it doesn't impact your enjoyment of this episode. It's now time to hear Primrose's View from the Lab. Let's start off with your um, your science journey. I would like to ask my guests about how they got into science. What was, what was their passion? Was it a personal thing for them? Was it a teacher that inspired them? Um, what really got you into science and kind of STEM type subjects? What are your memories from being in primary or maybe secondary school? I mean, I just always loved it. I, I was that really annoying kid that always asked why, why, why. And I just remember wanting to find out stuff and science seemed to to be the way to do that, really. So it's a tick to your box. And were you kind of um, uh, moving towards a particular area when you were in senior school? Were you a big fan of the physics or the biology or the chemistry? Was there anything that kind of you naturally moved towards? Um, I, I liked biology and chemistry. So when I came to pick my degree, I, I just picked one that sounded like both of them, biochemistry. Sounds very sensible. Um, and uh, where did you go to study when you left uh, school at 18 or 19? Uh, I went to Bath. Um, absolutely fantastic university. Had a brilliant four years there. Um, I, did, I did a sandwich course. Um, but I think the, the, the main reason I chose Bath was because the biochemistry building slightly set back from the main strip and you walk out the biochemistry building and you can see the lake there and you can see the amphitheater there and I remember it being February so it was Valentine's Day when I went for my interview and it was blazing sunshine and everyone was sitting around in the amphitheater with their friends drinking beer and I'm kind of like yep I can do four years here so it looks lovely. So you fell, you fell in love with Bath Uni at uh, St Valentine's Day so that's a nice, nice, little, nice little story and uh, enjoyed yourself uh, doing biochemistry above university so obviously you must have enjoyed um uh science even even university as things get a little bit tougher um because i believe uh, you've told me off the podcast that you decided to kind of continue that didn't you do a little bit of research after you left uh doing your main bachelor's degree is that right yes um but like when i was picking my levels i always said that i wanted to go into cancer research um and that's what i did straight after university i think i finished my last exams on the thursday moved to Surrey on the, over the weekend and then started work um, on the Monday in cancer research and um, yeah that's what I did. And was it a bit of a shock the change from a kind of student lifestyle straight into a job was it did it take a bit of um, uh, adaptation in those first few weeks and months just to get kind of in the work mode? It did take a little bit of an adaptation I think um, because I wasn't like I know a lot of people go and do a PhD and join the lab that way I went in as kind of like the lab manager um so I had a lot of responsibility I had to do all the ordering and I had to do kind of like you know looking after all the people that came in so it's kind of like and I had to make make professional phone calls I had to call up people and find out where orders were which is you know all of a sudden I was a grown-up 
um, and I had a real professional job and I had to do stuff and I had to like file stuff in the right place and yeah it was exciting. Good and what and so you were researching um cancer um uh, what particular part were you looking at we still looking at a very specific part of obviously it's a wide-ranging research area. Um yeah so I was looking at how the cells know when to divide so after the microtubules are connected to the uh, kinetochore um, and all the chromosomes are lined up in the middle. Um, once they're all lined up and each of them are attached to either the spindle poles, then they can say, yes, okay, you're ready to divide. But not all cells divide when they're ready. So I was um, using a small interfering RNA to remove proteins from the cells um, to mess up the architecture of the kinetochore and see what that did to the way that cells divided. So it sounds quite complex and important work. Did you um, end up finishing your research project? Um, did you go all the way and get your doctorate? I didn't, no. Um, after I was in cancer research, uh, I because we were out in a small research institute in the middle of the Surrey Hills, beautiful, beautiful views, but I was like straight out of university and wanted a bit of life. So I was a research assistant there for a bit. And then I went to UCL to start my PhD. Um, but I just decided that it wasn't for me and I think I got two and a half three years in and decided that uh, too much of my career up to this point had been staring at very small things through a microscope and I actually like talking to people a bit more than I like spending days in silence staring at things um, so UCL had a great program at the time um, called Researchers in Residence, where they took PhD students like I was, who were kind of feeling a bit lost and confused about where our career paths were taking them, and plonked them straight into inner city schools. I was in a school just on um, just north of the Eastern Road, and I was, you know, just basically got stuck in with teaching, being a TA, doing a bit of like, um, you know taking the kids that really wanted to go and do science and talking to them about it I had the kids into the lab to show them what it was like and it was fun so that's when I decided to go and be a teacher. So we might a much better balance in terms of uh, maybe ticking a bit of your extrovert box as well as a bit of an introvert box I guess would you say? Yeah I wouldn't I would never say that I was an extrovert but um, I don't think many people would believe me considering what I do now so. Uh, so it was a good experience so you went into teaching so um when you went into teaching, uh, obviously you did your PGC or your GTP, I guess, and then uh, you were put out there again into into the, if you like, the, you know, the real world of, of teaching. How did you find your, or did you remember actually? Because I always remember my first lesson. Do you remember the first lesson, whole whole lesson you taught, um, and did it go well? Was it all right? Oh, I can't remember the whole first lesson I taught. I can remember my first week. Um, so I had really, really great school to do my uh, NQT in. Um, I'd done my like um like before PGCE place not placement but kind of like you know when when you go into school to look around. Um, and then a job as a science teacher came up there, and um, I was really lucky that they employed me from the first of July. So I was in school for a few weeks before the summer holidays, like getting to know classes, getting to know where the toilets were, where the filing system was how the tea system works in the staff room. Um, and yeah, I just remember those few weeks for some holidays were just brilliant for making me feel like I belonged in the school. So, And did you take on a tutor group uh, when you started as well, like many teachers do? Yes, yes. Um, uh, the school I was in had uh, co-tutors. 
So there's always like a more experienced teacher and another teacher and we kind of like divide out the tasks. And, you know, they were never within the same department. So you were not forced, but you deliberately had to get outside of your own departments. Um, yeah, it's lovely. Good. And uh, obviously you've you got a passion for both biology and chemistry. And they, obviously they, they divide those definitely at sixth form uh, in schools. Um, have you experienced both of those or did they just put you into chemistry because there's tend to be fewer chemistry teachers about? Did you, what did they do with you? Yeah, yeah I was in chemistry um and then i moved into physics actually uh so i did a i think it was a 400 hour subject knowledge enhancement course um which was kind of like between the like the um science learning centers university of Hertfordshire, with some teachers from the university of cambridge as well and um i did it while i was pregnant um, because, you know, we never do easy things, can we? We just do all the hard things. So I remember I had to do like a research project. So I did kind of like, you know, ways to encourage girls into physics. And um, the project was due, I'm going to say the beginning of June. Baby was due middle of May. So I'm kind of like, we've got to get, <laughs> we've got to get this sorted. And I went into labour at about three o'clock in the morning and I'm like, oh, I haven't finished writing up my uh, my report yet. So I literally sat there for the day in labour, time on contractions, just sitting there typing my report um, and then got it submitted and said, oh, by the way, I'm like 12 hours into labour now, <laughs> just going to go to hospital. Please don't send it back for any corrections because they're not happening. So that was, that was very dedicated, Jen. That was very dedicated. They must. Have, I hope they gave you a distinction if that was available for that. I course. can't actually remember whether you got the grades. I think we just passed the course. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your marking load but still concerned about tier entry and ensuring your students are on track to meet their potential in science this year? Are you unsure that your department is marking consistently and matching how examiners would view your students' work? And do your students need that extra motivation that comes from being assessed by external examiners to nudge them towards a little bit more effort when it comes to their revision. Well, the Pearson Edexcel mock service may be just what you're looking for. It comes in two distinct flavours to serve your school's needs. You can choose from either a paper-based service to really match the experience your students will get in their final assessments, or an on-screen route which still uses the same experienced examiners to give you an authentic experience. The service is also linked to Results Plus, our results analysis tool, which gives you a full question level breakdown of your candidate's performance. We know mocks will be landing in schools at a variety of times, which is why flexibility is the key to this service. You can choose which papers you need for your cohort and make entries three weeks in advance wanting to sit your mock exams and we'll take care of everything else. The final dates for the service this year are 17th of April for our paper-based option and 11th of April for our on-screen delivery. Don't delay, find out more today as slots are limited. To get more details, including prices, type in Pearson Edexcel Mock Service into your favourite search engine and find out more, including all the pricing options. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the podcast. So thinking about those three sciences, that's quite interesting. You've, you've done all those three sciences to quite a deep, deep level, I guess. Um, what are your thoughts on the three sciences? Uh, do you... Um, a, I suppose maybe you like the biology and chemistry best, but in terms of teaching, how did you find the physics? Was it interesting because it was not your specialism and you did get a bit out of it? What, what did you feel about physics? Um, so I actually think that I was better at teaching physics than I was at chemistry and biology because I had to really, really think about what I was doing, why I was doing it, to properly make sure that I understood it 
Um, whereas, you know, balancing equations, I can basically do those in my head. Um, same with like algebra. I can just look at it and go, oh, that's the answer. Whereas with physics, I really, really have to think about what I'm doing. So I think that actually made me a better physics teacher. Because, yeah, you're kind of thinking of each step being a bit uh, meta, as they say, with the, the steps and how you might might achieve an answer. A lot of teachers have said that to me, actually. Um, now, thinking about um, you know, your, your life as a teacher and kind of, kind of transitioning on to your life online, um, can you tell me a bit about how that happened? Because is it right that it was not particularly planned, but it happened and then it grew from there? How did you move from just being a classroom teacher then starting sharing some of your content online? Um, what was the story behind that? Well, while I was on um, maternity leave for the, the baby I mentioned uh, previously, um, I went back into school and started to do my kit days and realised that the students I'd left behind needed a bit of extra help. Um, so I started just making them little videos, writing them worksheets to go with the videos, sending them the links, sending them the worksheets and kind of like email these back to me and I'll mark them and I'll make you another video and email your worksheet. So I ended my maternity leave, you know, baby in one arm, laptop in the other arm, making videos and worksheets, sending them into my students uh, to, to do. And then like I literally had no plans to to be a YouTuber or to leave teaching. I was just providing another resource for my students. Just that's what they needed. So I made it for them. So when did you decide, because obviously a lot of people, I suppose, have did that and put it because it was the most convenient way to put stuff online. YouTube was quite straightforward. And obviously your students interacting. And I guess there must have been a point on which you thought, well, um, my students are really liking this. Um, did you get feedback from other people to maybe encourage you and think, well, actually, maybe I should be doing a bit more of this because the, the world must have been telling you something to maybe pursue it a bit further. So what happened after you'd put that stuff out for your classes? Well, I put it out for my classes, said it's homework, and they took the mick out of me so much. They did it was hilarious. Um, so I was kind of like, yeah, okay, well, I think it's working, so I'm going to keep doing it. And then I started getting comments from people that weren't my students. And I'm kind of like, how are you finding these videos? Why are you watching them? And then, like, this was the beginning of the year. Then the exam period came around um, May, June of that year. And loads of people were watching my videos. And I'm kind of like, this is really weird. This was not the plan. Um, and then it's literally gone crazy. Since then, it kind of grew. Um, in that time, I guess, were you even aware of anyone who's doing something similar to you? I know you may have done it by chance, but did, were you aware of any kind of YouTubers were, that were kind of looking at that school market and putting videos out? Was it, was it something you'd searched for yourself? Or I mean, I mean, yes, I was. I, I didn't initially plan on making videos. I was using somebody else's videos. Um, but then just at the time when I started sending in the worksheets, watch this video, do this worksheet, um, that channel decided to put everything behind a paywall. Um, which was hugely inconvenient. So I'm kind of like, right, I can do this myself. So I did. I see. And where did the where does that that name Primrose Kissing come from? I guess um, uh, there's a story behind it. Is it a short or a long story? It's a pretty short story. Just about the time when I was starting to do all of this, um, we got a kitten, and her name was Primrose. And I'm kind of like, I'm really girly, and I like pink stuff and fluffy stuff, and I don't want to have a bland and boring channel name. I want it to be uh, represent me and be pink and fluffy and girly and hence Primrose Kitten. I see. And um, 
when you had started getting that bit of kind of momentum with your videos and you, and you realize that a lot of people are watching them did you then kind of hatch a plan and think well i must do x number of videos per week or was it still very ad hoc at the time um uh, how did you plan it out if you did plan it out I mean, I tried to have a plan. I tried to basically support my students in such a way that whatever we did in class, there was a video to go with it. Um, obviously, that was a massive undertaking because, um, you know, we were teaching five, six, seven classes a day. Um, that's a lot of videos. So I think I generally focused on kind of like A-level students um, and like, you know, the exam classes and tried to say, look, I've taught you this. I've given you some examples, given your homework, and then here's an hour video with a load more examples in. So some of my early videos are really, really long and dull and boring. It's like 45 minutes of titration calculations, um, where I just sit there and work through titration calculations. It's, um, yeah, they're pretty boring videos, really, but that's what my students needed, so that's what I made them. So do you, have you changed your ways in a sense now? Do you, do you aim to do a specifically length video? Do you say, well, I'm only going to do 10 minute videos because that's best for the students? Or do you do a mixture? Do you do some long form and some super mega quick ones? Um, I, videos are as long as they need to be. I don't have a set time for a video. Um, if there are lots of examples, then I'll probably do, you know, five easy, five medium and five hard examples. So there's um, a range of things um, but for some of the videos they are just quick short videos there's no there's no set time that they're as long as they need to be okay and do you um do you take approach of um having different videos for different cohorts in a sense that you might do a foundation video and a higher video or do you tend to go for the top end or do you just try and cover the syllabus as best you can i'm going to try and cover the syllabus as best i can but i will within a video have things generally at three different levels and then students can like you know if they get the the beginning questions then there's nothing to stop them pushing themselves or you know if you've got a higher tier student who's not really understanding it then there's nothing to stop them taking a step backwards in the video and watching some easier questions and nobody is watching them or judging them they're doing this at home in their own time so they don't have to be embarrassed by saying i don't understand this because they can just go and watch some of the easier examples and then move on to the hard ones. So, so it's kind of, kind of, but they can obviously use them how they, how they wish to use them. So if um, you're thinking about, so if you think about science more generally, a lot of people, or it seems, seems more common, it may not be more common, that people have difficulties with maths and science. And those are two sub those are subjects you found maybe easier than maybe even your peers when you were at school. Um, is there anything particular about science you think that does make it so um, difficult to access sometimes uh, for students. Is there any kind of reasons you think that are behind that? I think particularly with physics and a bit with chemistry, um, it's because sometimes things are so small and so abstract, it's, it's kind of hard to see. I guess biology doesn't necessarily have that problem as much because things tend to be larger. So you can see a heart, you can dissect it, you can stick your fingers in it and see where the tubes go. Um, whereas the structure of an atom is maybe a bit of an abstract concept to students who can't see it and feel it and, uh, you know, explore it in different ways. It's kind of like you have to you have to have an element of belief in the really small things that you can't actually see. Yes, yeah, got a good, a good, imagina good imagination for um, anything that is uh, smaller than the naked eye, don't you? You've got to definitely have a think about that. Now, I was thinking about your, your content and just I wanted to have interest. What is what are the kind of the most popular videos in terms of if you looked at say the biology, chemistry, and physics, 
is there ones that stand out loads and you think, oh, everyone always clicks on circuits more than radioactivity or what have you? Are there any kind of patterns you've noticed because you've got so much content out there? Um, yeah, so I would say there are two types of popular videos. My whole topic videos, so like the whole of biology paper one in an hour, is um, all the most popular ones. So I've got like the whole of maths, whole of GCSE maths, whole of available maths, currently working on the whole of available biology. You know, these are kind of like epic, epic videos that take me two or three months each to make. Um, and if I was going to rank them in order of popularity, it is the order of the exams. So biology paper one is first, that's the most popular video. Physics paper two is last, that's the least popular video. I think we're definitely seeing an element of kind of like exam fatigue in there. Um, outside of those videos, I would say it's my practical videos that are the most popular. Like I'm, I'm saying I'm not a professional filmmaker, I am, I guess. Um, but I do it in my spare room. I do it kind of like, so as from my point of view, so the students looking as if they were looking down at my hands, as if they were their hands. And yeah, those, those two different types of videos are my most popular. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think that, um, quite interesting that even the long form videos, so say you're looking at the exams, are still, still popular? Because I guess people can, you know, do 10 minutes and then come back to it and keep on going. So being lo being a long format is not necessarily a disadvantage when you can come back to something and just go back to where you where you finished, I, I assume. Yeah. So it's quite flexible. That's good. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you about um, science, uh, more, more generally about um, anxiety. I don't know if you, because I know you are, are big, not just on YouTube, but you've got your social media channels as well. Um, and I guess a lot of students message you um, about science and maths. Um, are there, do you think that there's been, so obviously there's been some big challenges over the last couple of years. Um, I'm recording this in June, 2021, um, just at the point at, well, we thought we, we thought we were going to come out of um, lockdown, but um, and it's anybody's guess. So when this comes out, we'll see where we are. But are there any kind of concerns you have for young people at the moment in terms of their, their, their kind of mental health that you are picking up on from your, your position as, as a kind of a leader of science education? Um, I think that the, young people's futures are being really constrained and restricted at the moment you know that they're, they're missing out not only on their education at science but also the enrichment that teachers would normally add into that all of the kind of new the additional stories that get wrapped around that have maybe been squeezed because of lack of time the the extra you know value added sparkly bits that teachers give to, to education that maybe you wouldn't necessarily get or they won't come across as well when they're doing it online and then when we got back into school everything was so squashed and squeezed and trying to get all the assessments done before today's deadline um yeah so I, th I think that that's my main worry at the moment that you know when and especially when this year's cohort gets to university they are going to be lacking in their practical skills you know maybe we're going to have students going to university who haven't done practical since year 10 or year 11 um which is a little bit of a scary thought for 10 years down the line when we're looking at the the chemists of the future it's gonna be, it's gonna be a challenge isn't it yeah um 
In terms of you and where you think you're going, and I always think it sounds like an interview question, as in sorry, as in as though you're going for a job. But where do you see your your channel and your life going with Primrose Kitchen? Is it something you'll ultimately finish one day? Where of course that will that will happen at some point. But um, what kind of uh, what kind of things, what kind of plans will you have for the next five, ten years? Do you want to keep on doing what you're doing, or do you want to branch out in some different areas that you think like you haven't you've only just begun in and you want to do a bit more of? Is any thoughts about that? I mean, I I am. Um keeping doing what I'm doing I'm moving on to A levels now um going through and do all of those videos um and I would love love to see an endpoint in the future um but at some point in the future the exam specifications will change and I would have to go back and I would have to start not from scratch but I would have to do a large large amount of work making the stuff that I have relevant so you know, if you don't change the exam specifications, then I can stop. Uh, yeah, that's true. So I don't have control of that, but I know what you mean. Uh, you know, obviously, obviously, as time goes on, things change. And yes, uh, as a content provider, I guess things always have to be tweaked and changed a little bit because things do change as they go through. Um, well, thank you very much for joining me today on the View From Lab podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you, Jen. Best of luck with your future proje- uh, projects and uh, feel free to uh, come on the podcast again at some point. Um, I'll say goodbye now. Thank you for joining me on the View From The Lab. Thank you. So there we have it, the story behind YouTube's science star, Primrose Kitten. I hope you enjoyed it. Are there any other science YouTubers you think we should be chatting to on the podcast? Let me know on andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. There'll be plenty more to come in 2022. Goodbye for now, and I'll see you on the next one.